0: But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. Uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are
1: real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah.
0: McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up.
2: This, and I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful. You know, it's uh, Pepe has become kind of a symbol. We
3: Welcome to Yeah na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by a returning guest, Professor Alexander Hinton, who is the author of It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the US. Thanks for joining us, Alex.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me back again.
3: I guess just to begin with, you recently attended the CPAC conference. Could you tell us a little bit about why you did that?
2: yeah that was quite a remarkable experience, so the sort of longer term reason is my long history of exploring extremism and violence, which links back in part to my work on the Khmer Rouge political violence and in, in general, but focusing more recently on the context of the u s as you mentioned it can happen here we're sort of hoping that after we got past the capital insurrection and We had a change of government. Things would calm down and former President Trump would go away. That was the hope of many people, but that's not the case. So I've been keeping my eye closely, like many people, on him. And at the same time as well, following white power networks and I've been doing a little more research on something that's linked to the book project. One chapter of my book talks about white genocide, as we talked about last time, and the sort of iteration of that as great replacement. White replacement has been sort of surging in the U.S. So if you went back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, nobody would be talking about replacement. They would have been talking about, well, they would be talking about it, but they'd be talking about it in terms of white genocide, often in the far-right extremist circles. But now there's been... um, for many reasons, Tucker Carlson, who was just fired and being one of them. The goal of many of these actors is to mainstream unacceptable discourse. They call it shifting the Overton window. And lo and behold, what happened over the last six years in the US, the Overton window has shifted dramatically. And so espousing white replacement views with all of the Underlying currents, anti Semitic, so on and so forth, is now mainstream. And the, not complete mainstream, but certainly mainstream on the right. So I've been monitoring replacement discourses and sort of researching that history in the US. There's one of my projects. And one place it had been manifest was CPAC. And many of the people who espouse replacement discourses attend, historically have attended. CPAC and that was that was true. Marjorie Taylor Green, Matt Gates, a bunch of other people. Steve Bannon was there. This one uh, was at least initially couched as different because the head of it was embroiled in a bit of a scandal. He is married, but he was accused by a staffer of former Senate candidate Herschel Walker of of the head of CPAC of groping him. And that doesn't play too well in conservative circles and especially CPAC circles. So some people distance themselves. Some people said there were fewer people than normal who would attend. And that seemed to be the case. So there's a bit of a scandal behind it. But sort of first and foremost, I wanted to take the pulse of the conservative right. I wanted to examine the prevalence of replacement discourse to see how central it was. And when I got there, in this regard, there were there were a few surprises.
3: In terms of the replacement discourse, we've recently seen in Australia a, a minor conservative media scandal, a publication called Crikey revealed that in The Spectator Australia and a few other Local conservative publications. There were people writing about things like uh, demographic issues within their pages, and then on Twitter were writing in sort of far more explicit neo-Nazi terms about what they thought was happening and who they thought was doing it at CPAC and I guess elsewhere within that conservative sphere. What is the rhetoric around the Great Replacement that's being employed? Are, are they going all the way and referring it to it explicitly, or is it still being couched in sort of more palatable terms?
2: yeah I think it's generally captured more palatable terms. They've tried to push out to some extent people who are a little more a little more on the fringe. Fuentes was in the backdrop getting kicked out periodically you anyways, I'm sure you're familiar with him the gropers but so I went there and I thought this so again in in the u s especially in the conservative circles, it's normal to talk it's now sort of not a big deal almost to invoke replacement discourses. It's standard standard material. And I can't say this for sure, but I was quite surprised that replacement discourses were not front and center. And that really was a bit of a shock because I expected that. And now I'm sort of wondering, maybe because it's so sort of mainstream, in a way, it's so something that doesn't necessarily galvanize the base. So, I was there. I'm an anthropologist, so I was doing a bit of ethnography, observing, looking, listening, doing discourse analysis. There were sort of six or seven buckets that many of the discourses fell into. For example, when I first arrived, and this was shortly after we had the controversy in the U.S. about the Chinese balloon that, of course, many on the right mock, but there's an ongoing both on the right and the left. Fear of often demonization of China, and that certainly is true of CPAC. It was one of I I wrote an article about the demons of CPAC. So I walked in, and there was a a Chinese conservative Chinese group that's linked to CPAC that's linked to Steve Bannon, who are sort of a almost a government in exile. They wanted to depose the current government. And so they would frequently say the Chinese Communist Party as opposed to China and couch it that way. And they're trying to topple that government. And they were handing out brochures and said something like, read about the evil of the Chinese empire or something to that effect. When I walked in, they had a giant booth in the exhibition space. There were sessions, many people talked about China. So China was like one big demon. A second one linked to it was the border. And this was a bit of a surprise with replacement because often in the replacement discourse, things center on quote-unquote illegal aliens. And that term was used. Stephen Miller was there, Trump's former national security advisor who basically oversaw border policy. He was using the term. Other people used it. But there was actually much more talk about border criminality in terms of cartels. And that played out in two ways. One way was fentanyl. And it would often be couched as fentanyl that China was sending to the US to kill people, or they were sending the ingredients that would be made by criminal cartels, Mexican cartels on the border and then being shipped over. And fentanyl is a big problem. And so in the US, and this resonates with a lot of people. And there but there was an odd second discourse, and you can see this on conservative networks like Fox now, where women especially coming over were depicted as victims, and they're being victimized by the cartels. And it's sort of said to amplify how dangerous and how evil the cartels are. But surprisingly, there wasn't direct demonization, as you would expect with replacement discourses taking place. Now, I expect that to change as we move into the election, and especially if if Trump is the candidate, as appears likely, unless he's indicted, Maybe he'll be indicted or further indicted, but depends on how his court cases play out. But he's looking like the front runner for sure at the moment here. And if that's true, I have no doubt about that. But the other sort of bucket that was not surprising, but new had two pieces. We might talk about this. There was the another bucket was, quote unquote, American Marxism, which plays into the cultural Marxism longstanding tropes. I think we talked about that last time. Um, Another bucket was the deep state, which was U.S. intelligence agencies, the Biden criminal family, as one session was called, Fauci, who was in charge of the COVID policy. He was completely demonized and reviled. And everyone, there's this giant conspiracy bucket of deep state. But as you might expect, what's moved even more to the forefront in the U.S. at this early stage are what was often referred to as wokeism, woke, being woke, so on and so forth. And this has, and this tie moves towards the the area of replacement, one bucket of it. One of the two buckets is, for example, critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Uh, So things centered on race which are, again, viewed as a form of cultural Marxism, brainwashing the population. But the second one, which was most surprising to me, and I ended up writing a separate article on it, was the complete and utter demonization of transgender people. I'm perfectly aware of many initiatives in the U.S. that are underway in conservative states, with Florida leading the way, trying to clamp down on the rights of transgender people but i did not expect it to be nonstop so for example pronoun jokes were constant i mean everybody was making pronoun jokes people would go up and sometimes they proudly announce their pronouns or say hey i don't know which of the 64 different pronouns i should use but then it amped up all the way to talk about things like genital mutilation and all such all sorts of other transphobic language i could talk a long time just about that issue but that Right now in the U.S., in politics, the sort of transgender issue is pretty much front and center. And it's possible that as people become jaded on other issues, and maybe even that's true of some of the critical race theory stuff, that right now at this very moment, transgender is a massive issue. And, you know, just as a last little point. There was this guy, Knowles, conservative commentator, who got up and he called for the eradication, right? As someone would say it's genocide that certainly, and, and many other people noted, the eradication of transgenderism, a term that's known to be derogatory. It makes it sound like being transgender is a condition, but the use of the word eradication really raised a lot of alarm bells. And people I know working in the genocide studies, atrocity crime studies space, have sort of been monitoring the rising risk and threat to transgender people in particular, but more broadly the queer community with transgender people being sort of along with the quote-unquote drag queens who are widely reviled in the media as sort of the two targets all the time. So that's kind of a long... Long description of CPAC, but those were my observations. Trump got on in the end, and he literally said, I'm going to be your retribution. I'm going to be your vengeance. I'm going to be your justice. And for the last cycle, he was going to be the voice. So there's also this undercurrent of violence that he, when he finally... So Trump was the last person to take the stage. And of course, he touched on many issues that I just... All the demons I just mentioned, including the attack on transgender rights.
1: Alex, what do you think is the particular appeal um, to the audience at CPAC and more broadly of this kind of rhetoric? And do you consider CPAC, which is nominally conservative, to be in some way or in any way, could it be more properly or appropriately described as some kind of extremist organization?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. They're very aware of being labeled like that. And certainly articles with past CPACs have been written. This guy, Fuentes, who, I don't know if, if you remember, there was a time when he went with Kanye West G, and met with Trump at Mar-a-Lago, and it caused a bit of a scandal. So he has his America First group. And so he was in and out, and he actually held his own little meeting because they kept kicking him out, escorting him out, so to speak. He held, and I was unable to go to it, I probably wouldn't have really allowed him, but he held his own extremist meeting. He's neo-Nazi and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, you know, the, sort of, That sort of, sort of language circulates widely with him and his followers. But he, and what I wanted to go see, but it, he did not have a formal one, is he's actually held a side conference. And that side conference can definitely fall under that umbrella of extremist. So he's held it sort of concurrently or close to CPAC, he made one statement that I read that he's going to have it next year, and if so, I'll I'll try and go and check it out for sure. Again, I'm not sure they'll let me in. CPAC was just buy a ticket and you go in; it's massive, so it wasn't all difficult. CPAC itself, I don't think. I think they're trying to distance themselves from overt extremist rhetoric, and instead, what they're really sort of going back to the themes I was talking about. In some sense, many of them are sort of standard demonization of a foreign country coincidentally, there was virtually or I should say very little mention of Russia or Putin, which I thought there would be at least some. I was a little bit surprised by that. But there was a lot of talk about Ukraine taking U.S. dollars. And that's sort of the way that played out. Now, I should say I went to about I went to some side sessions. For example, there was a January 6th session where the political prisoners as they're called uh, at CPAC and on conservative circles the January 6 political prisoners were speaking about their unfair treatment so i, I ducked into a few side sessions but i went about 75 80% of the of the talks on the center on the center stage and the theme of the conference was i believe was protecting america now so this theme of protection that could easily speak to replacement discourses was front and center but what's Going on is, I think, the conservative part of of CPAC is critical here. The there's a massive network of religious groups, conservative groups, uh, fundamentalist groups. John Birch Society had a booth. So many of these many of these groups and, and people have been active for a really long time at CPAC, but also in right wing Republican politics. Uh, so they know how to frame things in a way that's not going to fall under the label extremist. So I wouldn't say CPAC in this iteration, this time, fell into that. But certainly the ground is laid. And with regard to the attack on the open, unapologetic attack on transgender people, somewhat shocking. And certainly, for example, they're log cabin Republicans. There are some Republicans where you have same-sex marriage, those topics were not broached. Nobody even mentioned them. There were allusions, negative allusions to same-sex marriage and the states, but there was the door was wide open for attacks on quote unquote evil, demonic transgender people, and people did not hold back.
3: Alongside this dehumanizing rhetoric, there are sort of legislative efforts across the United States to I guess fulfill Knowles's wish to eradicate transgender people. As a student of Genocide. How do you situate the current situation? Where 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 are we at?
2: Yeah. Well, I think the what's interesting is the the rhetoric of demonization is there to implement a policy. So, as we I think we talked about last time, there's a spectrum, there's a range of atrocity crimes, genocide. There's an intentional destruction of a group. Uh, you can have crimes against humanity in the context of war, war crimes. Ethnic cleansing. Crimes against humanity is kind of a broad category that encompasses widespread attacks on civilians and different groups. So what we have now is not at the moment a situation where genocide is about to occur tomorrow, but we have, if you looked at this on a spectrum, and again, I did this in my book, It Can Happen Here, sort of looking at the U.S. And I t- I think we t- talked last time, sometimes I think about it as a going from a simmer, if you think a kettle on a stove, simmering, moderate, moderate to simmer up to a low boil and then a high boil. By the time we got to January 6th in the U.S., things were cooking up to a high boil. It was a really dangerous situation and things could have Anyways, really gone south. But with regard to transgender people, I would say we're now at a moderate simmer. What you don't have is you don't have an institutional apparatus that's mobilized to target a group. That would require another administration. What you do have, and what's occurred in a sort of very low level way, are attacks sometimes by far right extremists on the queer community, but especially on transgender people. So right now we have the demonization and use of words like eradicate that often precedes attacks, political violence, hate crimes against a group. And in the right constellation of right situation, that group could become the target of atrocity crimes.
1: Alex, we've recently witnessed a tour by an anti-trans activist to Australia, which was accompanied by protest and a good deal of discussion. I'm wondering what do you think is the role of those individuals who I think could be classified as agitators. how important are they in terms of inculcating these views and do you think these attitudes have popular appeal, or do they do you think it's really possible to generate sufficiently popular i guess support for genocidal policies in this regard
2: Yeah, and again, I would say genocide is the extreme before that hate crimes and attacks on members of a group, which is sort of where we are now, so in the u s again, this isn't. We we'll go back to the overtim window. These discourses are now spoken. The language of genital mutilation. Marjorie Taylor Greene was using it left and right. Trump used it. <clears throat> the demonization depiction of transgender people as dangerous is widespread. What's important, I forgot to pull this out And the, the, when I was talking about the conservative groups. So because they're, they're religious, they opposed before many of them same-sex marriage. They lost that battle in the U.S. And so they've, but it's one that can really rile up the base. And so now to rile up the base, they're focusing on transgender, on the transgender community. And and more broadly, again, sort of the transgender community standing for the broader queer community, although it's not often articulated quite like that. But the language that's used, and I have a piece that came out in the in the journal Sapiens recently that talks, is based on CPAC, and it talks about basically two myths that exist. One is the myth that transgender people are unnatural. The second related one is that transgender people, in part because they're unnat- quote-unquote unnatural and quote-unquote deviant, are therefore dangerous. And so these two myths circulated all the time broadly at CPAC. People would say things like, "God created men and women." God created us men and women. Or referring back to, with one of the Supreme Court justices in the U.S. was asked by a senator if to give a definition of a, of what a, of a, what a woman is, and the Supreme Court the, the Supreme Court nominee at the time refused to do that, and so it became. Again, another one of these talking points that was referred to all the time at CPAC, where people would say, I know what a woman is, or I know what a man is. Like People would say this with bluster. So there are all these different ways from these sort of overt, demonizing discourses of hate that were used sometimes to the everyday common pronoun critique jokes that were being made to these more moderate comments of making statements like this. So, well, What does it mean if a group is unnatural? Well, they're not people, right? They're not, quote-unquote, natural people. They're not normal people. It's establishing deviance, danger, and that's precisely the sort of language that's used historically, broadly, and widely, and by extremist groups all the time to demonize people who are being targeted. So, again, this isn't sort of a, a large number of people. I think there's a fair amount of ignorance about this issue in general. But there are people, especially members of the queer community who study genocide, who are really paying a lot of attention to this. And I certainly think transgender people are at risk in the U.S. and many other parts of the world, for that matter.
3: Alex, you've described Trump as participating in a revitalization movement. Could you speak a little bit about what that is and perhaps how closely related it might be to something like palingenetic ultranationalism?
2: Yeah, no. So. The concept of revitalization goes back to, it has many different iterations. There's an anthropologist, Anthony Wallace, who coined it and talked about it in terms of different stages. But if you sort of come down to the essence, and again, if we speak about it generally in this sense, it plays into things like fascism, but also to the everyday MAGA language. It's the sense that society is under threat. What was once, what once existed an idealized pure way of life has been eroded, degraded, and so you have the threats. Who are the threats? Well, with replacement discourse, right, you get, for example, immigrants or non-white minorities in the U.S. who are the threats who are endangering this idyllic way of life. And especially when you have things like manufacturing decline, areas in the US and many other parts of the world as well, where groups who people once had a job and they've lost their jobs. Maybe there's widespread, this is in different parts of the US, this is that takes place, widespread use of fentanyl, people dying. The fentanyl crisis in the US is really shocking, but these are all things that make make America great again. For those who might not know the term, make a MAGA message all the more appealing. And Trump is a master of deploying these discourses. He's been doing it. It never fails him. And it was also, for the first time, I sat through an entire Trump speech. They're long. I've heard parts of them, but I've never sat through an entire one. And so often what we get are the highlights when he really is stirring up a crowd, but he actually has a sort of almost folksy way of talking, almost like someone being in your living room, sitting and chatting as he, as sort of the elder figure tells stories. And many of those stories are stories that link into his rhetorics directly and ultimately come down to this notion of decline, backwardsness, threat on the horizon, catastrophe. And again, one of those buckets I mentioned before, <clears throat> the discussion of of Marxism, radical left Marxist, it was a constant. It was not, not as much as transgender, but it was something that was front and center. And Trump, I can't remember his exact phrase, like led off saying something to the effect of the US is just completely being destroyed by these radical left Marxists, and so on and so forth. So you get this construction of this sort of, again, a group that historically in the history of U.S., especially if people are conservative, has been reviled, communist countries. And again, it's really odd that all the focus was on China. So you have China, but then you have the parallel in the U.S., which is this deep state of American Marxist. So really it's quite simple, right? Decline, threat, in a message for something better, a promise of something better, and Trump constantly promises something better. And he also backlights the past to say, in fact, he made it much better when he was president, and now it's all been destroyed, but this time, and he sort of pauses and says, this time, it's a battle for our survival. And so he was deploying these rhetorics. Afterwards, his next speaking engagement was actually Waco, Texas, on the anniversary of the big shootout with the branch Dravidians. So that was quite a statement he made there. So Trump's going to get warmed up and his, all the things he was doing before are going to be right back front and center. I expect replacement language to quite quickly come in. Bannon, Bannon, as I said, spoke at CPAC, huge supporter. Much of his discussion was about Fox basically refusing to interview or talk to Trump which has actually gone on. But this, of course, took place to some extent when he was a candidate before, where he was sort of an outsider. And so Bannon lambasted him for that. We have a broader... So Tucker Carlson, as you may have heard, who's one of the big Trump... Well, he seems to, based on transcripts that were released in the lawsuit against Fox, linked to the Dominion voting machines, there were different transcripts. He privately would say very negative things about Trump. At the same time publicly and in his interviews, he would say great things. And in fact, after those remarks were released, Tucker Carlson did a long interview on Fox with Trump. Perhaps that was his apology. But now Tucker Carlson's gone. But media, right-wing media is almost diversifying. And it's increasingly, as we find throughout the world, moving into all sorts of different non-mainstream media outlets, including podcasts, YouTube, all sorts of different things. And this is a like Candace Owens, who also spoke there. She's a black woman who's conservative, but picks up all these different tropes that are being talked about. She talked about, of course, transgenderism, the dangers of feminism. But we have this big shuffling that's going on. So that's a long way of sort of, talk. so I addressed the revitalization part of it. But the other key component is the messages are being disseminated and all sorts of different Forums, so Candace Owens has millions of followers, people who listen and tune in. She's very bright, she's articulate, and she's very good at promoting this message. So even if Trump has been kicked off of Fox, there are many other places that are more than happy to promote his message. And I I expect he'll be back on Fox if he continues to be the front runner in the as the Republican candidate. And I should just note that they did a CPAC straw poll, and I, Trump got I think sixty two percent of the vote of the people who voted DeSantis got about twenty percent, so everybody was talking about DeSantis coming in, but that seems to be not the case unless something catastrophic legally happens to Trump
3: Alex, you mentioned Waco one of the things of course that the massacre at Waco inspired was then the Oklahoma City bombing, which was commonly described as a lone wolf attack. You've written a bit about lone wolf attacks recently. I was wondering, what is a lone wolf attack and perhaps why is that not the correct term for these things?
2: Yeah, this sort of plays into a broader a broader issue about the way that people tend to think about perpetrators in general. So, for example, if as soon as there is a, let's say, a white power shooting, like Gendron, the Buffalo shooting in the US, for example, but you could take it almost anywhere. There's an immediate tendency to label those people as evil, right? That's a common one you get in the media, as mentally ill, as the sort of, going back to the loner trope, the person who was always alone by themselves. And you have this set of language that comes in. So it plays more broadly into broad cultural tropes of people, all of us being sort of amateur psychologists. So when we look to explain behavior we looked at dispositions. So, in looking for dispositions, right, we look at the quote unquote lone wolf or the quote unquote bad apple, and we can sort of place, find the blame and the cause, right? It's in their mental instability, their crazes. I have a lot of, I've tracked a lot of the language, but especially evil, deviant, it goes on and on. And then, historically, both people in everyday Discourse, but also in law enforcement, people have talked about lone wolves. That draws upon this idea that these are isolated individuals. So Abu Ghraib, the famous case in the US with the quote unquote war on terror. They committed all sorts of abuses. The photographs were released. They circulated all over the world. But when they ended up trying the people who had done this, they tried lower-ranking people and they called them bad apples. What they don't do is that this diverts us away from the system. And so there's real danger in using language like lone wolves, because what it does is it erases what's occurring and what's driving it in terms of group relations, organizational structures, and systemic structures. So going back to Abu Ghraib and the US military, if you blame a few bad apples, you don't have to look at the system that created the prison context where those abuses could take place. And there's lots of many Zimbardo prison experiments, Milgram experiments, many different social psychology experiments that have said, well, their disposition may have a degree of an impact. Some people talk now, there's a term dark personalities, but it's literally like 1% of the population, almost always people who are perpetrators and do things are enmeshed in groups. They're responding to situational cues. They're enmeshed in broader systems. And so it's absolutely essential so this language means that we're diverted away from the bigger problems <clears throat> if you go back to another term that's used racist so right now we have the we have Bowers who committed an attack in the US i think it was in 2018 at Tree of Life synagogue he killed i, I can't remember maybe a dozen people at the synagogue Jews at the synagogue I don't hold me on that number. I don't. It's not on the top of my mind. It's eight to twelve, I think. But he's just now going on trial. But the first word to describe him was evil, but also racist. Well, what happens when we say people are racist? Yeah, it, 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 there's a certain truth that speaks to. But what it does is it diverts us away from looking at structural racism, or if you want to say evil, well, it diverts us away from looking at what we might call structural evil, which are the larger organized systems that produce this behavior that uh, lead to it. So again, this language, this term of lone wolf or bad apples, or these sort of singular explanations that we commonly use that root everything in some kind of inherent quality. So what's evil? Well, that goes back to notions of original sin. There are different things, but it tends to be this innate quality that someone possesses that makes them inhuman. So you don't get much of an explanation from that. So there's a long way of saying that what's absolutely critical is to watch how we use language and always look for the more complicated, complex explanations, which are linked to organizational networks, larger systems. But those things not just are often difficult to see, but those systems don't want people to see it. So the U.S. military did not want people to talk about how it had produced this prison context in which these abuses could take place. Instead, you had these bad apples, quote unquote. So that's what the article that came out in the conversation on lone wolves was sort of we can never stop having reminders. People have written about this, but it's quickly forgotten because the sort of go to explanation is lone wolves. And again, in the U.S., because for many years, conservative politicians did not want the issue of white power extremism addressed, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies had a sort of structural impetus to focus on, quote unquote, lone wolves, because if you look at the broader context, it's going to implicate people on the rightness, especially the far hard right. So again, more, just like in the military, you have political a political system that pushes law enforcement to look at things, to use the language of lone wolves or lone actors. And <clears throat> that's still true to some extent, but now it's Biden becoming president, the sort of ability of law enforcement to look at broader networks. That's increased even as they continue to often use this language.
1: Alex, rather than, a, I guess, what might be termed a structural analysis, which attempts to explain why particular actions are undertaken and the circumstances in which they are, something else that's emerged in recent years that's closely associated with Trumpism is what's termed conspiracy theory or some form of Some kind of explanatory framework that is problematic for various reasons. Can you talk about, in terms of your, I guess, being witnessed at CPAC and more broadly, how do you approach the question of conspiracy theory and its, I guess, its function, its political function in terms of explaining what's going on in US society and elsewhere?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. It's a big issue. And conspiracy theory was all over the place at CPAC. So, Again, so conspiracy theory is useful because it often doesn't require a great degree of complexity. What it needs is a message that blends enough truth and the sort of semblance of possibility to make sense to people. And it's presented in a way that makes sense based on what people can look around and see. So in the U.S., like much of the world, during the pandemic, people looked around and they experienced it. They were locked up. People, children were not going to schools. And you had the government controlling what people were doing with the CDC here and other government agencies. So this was ripe for conspiracy theories. And there's a debate to be had about whether certain states, including the one where I live, were a bit slow to let up on some of the different protocols. But the way it's couched with conspiracy theory is that in fact it was all a American Marxist plot to control and brainwash people, and so vaccination—it's all a giant plot to make money for pharmaceutical companies and to introduce in some of the variants, sort of biogenetic changes into people. So people again, this is just an example. So people look around; they're they feel controlled. All of us did right in a certain sense. So that makes sense. There's restrictions to what you're sort of allowed to do. You're told, well, you can get a vaccine that could save your life or not. You're told it's effective, but some people feel they've always had vaccine hesitancy. And so these different conspiracy theories resonate in some sense. They blend the realities on the ground with untruth things that are not substantiated. So there's one microcosm of what exists broadly with conspiracy theory in general. So go, let's go to CPAC. So by the way, CPAC was full of conspiracy theories about vaccines, about the American Marxist plot. As I said before, Fauci was demonized. There's one moment where a speaker looked out at the crowd and said, how many of us are going to get a vaccine when it's offered? Yeah, like literally no one. I, I was getting ready to raise my hand, but I, in the crowd, I was like, oh, I'd be the only one. <laughs> literally no one raised their hand. How many people wore a mask? Zero. I could be maybe one in a hundred, one in 200, one in 300, almost no one. I I didn't wear a mask either. I'd recently had COVID. So I, anyways, I wasn't too worried, but it's just, this is the idea the deep state, deep state plot is promoting this. So again, if you go back to your earlier question on revitalization, if people look around and they, just like I was talking about COVID before, they see fentanyl everywhere, people dying, people suffering addiction, people have lost jobs, people's lives somehow they look on the news they see horrible things happening so if you look on so i often every day well i do it every day i force myself to look at all the different the same moment to flip between all the networks several different points to see how they're framing the news quote unquote and invariably you'll have on cnn or msnbc stories about Trump, for example. Sometimes now CNN is trying to go more to the middle. So they're doing stuff. They may focus on international events sometimes. MSNBC is almost always what's going on with Trump. And if you go to Fox News, it's almost invariably criminality. And this is where, going back to replacement discourses, you get race blending in, and it's almost always black criminals beating up and attacking white victims. And they often will play fairly graphic videotapes. This all started really got going during the George Floyd protests. So people see this in their lives. And what's the explanation? Well, you come up with some conspiracy theories. The deep state plot, right? As I said before, the deep it's used so it's one word that captures that sort of makes sense to people there you know everyone is engaged with bureaucracy right everybody knows what it's like to file taxes right so this sort of thing there's this larger state people know about government actors and agencies but they don't know much beyond that so then what happens in this in the cpac universe is that all these other things are plopped into that. And you have these malicious American Marxists, Biden crime family, Fauci, independent, un, un, unmonitored law enforcement agencies who all together, and pharmaceutical companies, Fauci, they're all working together to manipulate people. And so that deep state, deep state trope was constant. And what's con- concepts are most powerful, think of it like a rubber band. If you have a rigid concept, right, that doesn't fit much, there's no elasticity. So for a good conspiracy theory, what you want is you want an idea that's elastic, that can stretch in different directions, right? Because then its appeal is broader. QAnon was just like this, right? There's sort of a heart to QAnon conspiracy, but it went all over the place because it had lots of elasticity, so a good conspiracy theory has lots of elasticity. People can pull it in different directions that make sense of the, you know, that makes sense in their local situation. And now going back to media versus the old days when there were a few news networks, now people get their information all over the place, and conspiracy theories can spread like wildfire. And when you get someone like Trump who is highly charismatic, and again, I'm always When I say that to colleagues on the left, they often say, oh, he's not, they'll say he's quote unquote an idiot or they'll dismiss him. No, no, absolutely. Trump is highly charismatic. He can stir up an audience, he can mesmerize them. When someone like him is an order, gets going, he can really manipulate people with these conspiracy theories. And he loves talking about the deep state. So, again, it's a, a huge, absolutely critical. Issue you just raised and conspiracy theory is alive and well, and it's going to be all over the place in the next U.S. election.
3: Alex, you mentioned earlier that Ukraine was a more, perhaps, more of an issue for the commentators at CPAC than Russia, particularly the the funding of Ukraine's efforts to protect itself from Russia. It's also not uncommon to see amongst people on the right a disdain for American support for Ukraine. At the same time, perhaps in a different universe to the one that the Republicans occupy, uh, it was reported in the New York Times last month that the Pentagon is currently blocking the Biden administration from sharing evidence with the ICC in The Hague about Russian atrocities in Ukraine. Could you speak a little bit about what's happening there and why that is?
2: Yeah, that's a fascinating question. There's sort of two parts. So taking the last one first. The U.S., as with a few other countries, have never signed on to the International Criminal Court. Well, actually, there's a history they did of Clinton sort of initially sign on, back off. But, you know, the U.S. is not a party to it, and they've actually been hostile. And in general, the reason for the hostility is they don't, that members of the government don't want U.S. troops to be held accountable by a, by the ICC or another international court. So they even, when the ICC, the Rome statutes were first passed, they began cutting deals with different countries saying, if you want USA, you can't, you have to promise not to turn over U.S. citizens, soldiers like Donald Rumsfeld. And, but what was the U.S. doing in the years when the just after when the ICC was passed? Well, fighting the quote-unquote war on terror. U.S. troops were committing atrocity crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity. And they absolutely can be held accountable. And so more recently, there's a long history with the ICC, critiques of it for primarily focusing on Africa in particular, African leaders, but never looking at countries like the U.S. And so finally, a case began to get going more recently, though it's been dropped. But the U.S. has a real hesitation to sort of engage and collaborate. So that distrust of the ICC is so strong that despite... now. The Biden administration has some people linked to it who are for engagement with international justice mechanisms, including in terms of Samantha Power, for example. So there's a push by some people to have some engagement. And so the U.S., because it's so invested in the Russian invasion and supporting Ukraine, and they've been gathering tons of evidence, said, we want to turn this over, but the Pentagon blocked it. I have not heard that that stopped. But the reason they're blocking it, and it doesn't even was solely because they don't want a precedent of cooperation. Even they know that giving evidence about Russian atrocity crimes, handing it over to the ICC, it's not going to do anything to U.S. troops, but it's just the mere precedent. The sort of first part of your question. So historically, if you look at the Republican Party, especially going back into the Cold War, into the Reagan years, had a very hawkish foreign policy position and would always have been actively supporting efforts to protect U.S. security, quote-unquote, as it's talked about and defined a sort of realist position in political science speak. So I, I thought that there would be more people critiquing Russia. And again, I was surprised. There were some... So now at CPAC and the Republican Party... They demonize or they talk about rhinos, Republicans in name only. You know, I remember another time, these are people who might have been Reagan supporters. It used to be that Reagan was this revered figure, and he still is for some Republicans. But I was in Miami with a taxi driver, for example, who was a big Trump supporter, talking, trying to understand his views. And I said, what about Reagan? Because we start talking about the Russian invasion. He goes, Reagan? He said in a way like, that's a rhino now. So the old hawkish, not with China, I should say, that there were terms like the Kung flu and the China virus, those were circulating to some extent at CPAC. But in general, that sort of anti-Russian hawkishness was not there. Now, we know as well that in many white power extremist circles, Putin is valorized, Orban, different sort of white strongman leaders in different countries. And so you have these connections between white power extremists in many other parts of the world, including the US, with groups in Russia. And there's sort of a valorization. I can't say that everyone at CPAC thought that way. But it's certainly true that I think that's a factor that plays into that. I mean, to not mention Putin, I, I can't recall one mention of Putin. Russia a couple of times. So instead, it was Zelensky, the Biden puppet, or the person who's coming to, quote unquote, beg for money from the US that should be being spent for the sort of Trump follower base, the people who are impoverished in the country, so on and so forth. That was was frequent.
3: I've spoken with people who have been dealing with people in public-facing roles. And they're saying that the rhetoric that they're receiving from the public is like nothing that they've ever experienced before in public life. They've never before had so many people contacting them with eliminationist rhetoric. And these are people working in local councils and at libraries and things. Is there a way out of this?
2: Yeah, another important question there's always a way out of it. I'm always, in some sense, an optimist. And one thing, in one sense, if we look back, right, we had replacement in the US context, invasion of non white people coming over the border. We've had this, then another wave that's been focused on quote unquote wokeism. It, it's still there, but maybe it's subsiding. And then, sort of coming out of that, this other thing that's bound up with that discourse linked to the, these attacks on the transgender community. It works. So what appeals, well, if you say, look, you go back to this naturalized discourse, it's obvious to everyone, right? This is the way it's framed. People are born, men and women, right? Male and female would be, if you're doing sex versus gender, that would gets into the complicated thing and was one of the things that was being mixed up all the time at CPAC. That language makes intuitive sense to people. If you say, well, there's this conspiracy and these people are conspiring, and sometimes it's doctors who want to make money, pharmaceutical companies, always the deep state, Biden administration, so on and so forth, who at a time when your children are extremely vulnerable, going through puberty, are now coming into the schools and purposely confusing them and introducing them amidst this time of biological turmoil, of adolescent turmoil. To these ideas and saying this, this isn't true. There aren't just men and women; there are different genders. And in fact, some people, right? There are drag queens are being brought into the libraries again. This is the way it's being. It's not me speaking. This is the way it's spoken about. You know, coming into the libraries and they're confusing kids so much that they're willing to mutilate their bodies. So that sort of language is very powerful. It goes right down to the family level. Most. Virtu- if you know if you pull people, it's like the concept of race. I'm shocked. I ask my students how many of you understand that race is a social construction? And they, they, don't, they don't know that argument. It's, it's almost bizarre. I'm in the New York metropolitan area. I'm in a institution, the institution where I teach is predominantly students of color. It's, it's kind of shocking. So if that's true where I'm teaching, what does it mean about the broader public? It means that virtually very few people understand that race is not a quote unquote natural category, but in fact, a social construction in the same way. Same thing goes with gender categories. So there's incredible ignorance about this thing combined with an intuitive obviousness to most people about what's natural combined with even more in this case with the Bible, with religion. So it's a, it's a very volatile mix. And so I think the, the far right, the conservative right, and even mainstream Republicans have hit on an issue that resonates with a lot of people, as did this sort of notion, cultural Marxist or American Marxist, quote unquote, or brainwashing your kids with critical race theory. I, th- I think that one's running out of steam a little bit. So this is the new issue. But I think it makes even more intuitive sense to people. And that's really dangerous. And so what can we do? Well, education. So that's part of the reason I wrote an article in this journal, Sapiens, sort of talking about the two myths and explaining the difference between sex and gender and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I guess everyone, all of us, have to ask what we can do. Thank you for your amazing show that you have here you're talking about this what can i do teach about it write about it everyone can do something but the first and foremost thing everybody needs to do is to educate themselves and understand the issues and looping back one last time to conspiracy theories what's really nice about a conspiracy theory quote unquote nice is how easy it is it explains things It, it makes sense based on what you see around the world and so you don't have to probe much deeper and that's that's the countervailing tendency that needs to be combated, so ultimately, in my own pedagogy, people talk about critical thinking, but i I try influenced in part by Adorno's education after Auschwitz, which I think I talked about last time, you know that's really at the core is not taking. An overt political position. I actually say to students, I don't, you don't want to know my opinions about issues. I don't want to know yours. What we can do together is to look at issues, look at the different sides and think critically about them. And then you on your own and me on my own, we make our decisions, right? We based on the information and analysis that we've done. Hannah Arendt, another person who she's a social theorist, philosopher, student of Heidegger's, she once influenced by. Platonic Dialogues by Socrates talked about this as the two-in-one. And for her, the sort of ideal for all of us is that on our own, we would be holding a sort of Socratic dialogue and trying to understand and think deeply about issues. But then we had a obligation, and this is Heidegger who joined the Nazi party, retreated into the mountains, and she always condemned him for this. He would not engage in the public realm. After thinking and formulating our judgments. To go into the public realm and to talk to others in a respectful manner and to both challenge them, learn from them, and on the basis of that communication, and for example, this your show is an example, the classroom is an example, anytime people are dialoguing in public, then to go back and on their own to do the two-in-one. So for me, again, as, as someone working as a professor in education, the skill I'm trying to teach Uh, is both that two-in-one, right? The ability to critically think about an issue without offering my views on things and to the obligation to enter into the public sphere, to listen to others in the public sphere, to express their own views in the public sphere, and then to continue thinking. So again, what can be done? The two-in-one. Everyone needs to think deeply and critically, and everyone needs to listen to other people, everyone has an obligation to be open-minded. But unfortunately, that's too often not the case because in the end, it's difficult and often uncomfortable to do deep, critical thinking.
3: Well, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, you're on Twitter at Alex L Hinton, and the book is out through NYU Press. It can happen here. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks so much for having me back. I really enjoyed it.
3: Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then.
0: I'm talking about the FBI, I'm talking about the FBI, baby, I'm talking about the FBI. Lying low to preserve my health, spending all my nights and days at the well, pump up the jukebox while I figure what I'm gonna do. Subliminal. I'm talking about the FBI, honey. I'm talking about the FBI. And ain't the CIA. No drone strike today. No chance to get away when you're wanted by the FBI. Well, come on, baby, shake a hip. I got an AK-47 and an extra clip. Gonna dance till I die, surrounded by. I'm wanted by the FBI. I'm wanted by the FBI. This ain't MI6. We wear a little spooky bricks. Getting up to their usual tricks. I'm talking.
3: experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR
2: supporter.
0: Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter.